This is Easy Jazz Spotlight. In this episode, host Ken Boyd speaks with biographer James Gavin, author of Deep in a Dream, The Long Night of Chet Baker. In this fascinating interview, Ken asks James what he thinks really happened to Chet Baker when the jazz artist was found dead on an Amsterdam sidewalk in 1988 after falling from a third-story hotel room. The conversation begins on the topic of James's writing career and his ability to do meticulous research. With me in the Jazz Spotlight today is New York author and biographer James Gavin, who has written numerous books about jazz legends. More on that in a minute. One is a riveting account of the life of trumpeter singer Chet Baker called Deep in a Dream, The Long Night of Chet Baker. Welcome to the Jazz Spotlight, James. So happy you asked. I'm looking forward to this. Thanks, Dan. I want to talk about the book, of course, but first of all, I want to talk about you. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter calls you a killer biographer, referring to the George Michael biography of life, chosen by people as one of its best books of this past summer. Congratulations. A fascinating, heartbreaking bio, said Selected Press. Your other books you've done are, include, uh, Is That All There Is? The Strange Life of Peggy Lee, Stormy Weather, The Life of Lena Horne, and of course, the Golden Age of New York Cabaret. That was your first book, wasn't it? Oh, I was a child. I started <laughs> writing that book when I was a junior at Fordham University. I was 20 years old. <clears throat> I had nothing to go on other than sheer desire and a lot of nerdy scholarship. I had no agent. I had no uh, track record at all. I'd only published articles in school newspapers. Uh, but I... I had this burning desire, A, to be a writer, B, to write a book, and C, to live in the past, which is a place that I spent my whole early life living in. In the past, I wanted to vicariously go back to what I perceived as the golden age of New York nightlife, namely the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Fabulous times. I well yes it, it would seem so uh, I at that time I started doing my research in the mid 80s and practically everybody that I wanted to interview was still alive and it was a glorious experience for me to phone these people up and tell them who I was and what I was doing and in almost every single instance to get a yes they they didn't have to trust me but somehow i think they sensed my sincerity and the strangeness of it how did this 20 21 year old kid know so much about their old cabaret acts at the blue angel and the bone soir so i saw it through and that book gave me my life and so how did you know all that just from growing up with it with your mom and dad living in new york of course I was born in Manhattan, but adopted. And so I grew up in Yonkers, New York, directly north of Manhattan. Right. How did I know about it? I had discovered uh, at the age of, let's see, eight, nine, ten. That was the the nostalgia craze was booming at that time. The Andrews sisters were on Broadway and the big band singers were back and That's Entertainment Part One had come out and everybody was excitedly rediscovering the World War II years and 
Uh, Bette Midler had, of course, put the Andrews sisters back on the map with Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. And I found all of this very exciting. Why do we regress into the past? Why do we want to live in the past? It's usually because we're not so crazy about the present. And I didn't like the present at all. I didn't like what I things were rough at home. Uh, I wasn't interested in pop music of the day for the most part. I found the 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 what i perceived as the extreme sophistication and romance of that era tremendously appealing and gradually i found my way from pop music of the day the big pop singers like margaret whiting joe stafford peggy lee dinah shore i found my way toward jazz because great jazz musicians were accompanying those singers and it took a long time, but finally I developed this great love of, of musicians who play like singers. That's why Chet Baker appealed to me so much. And he, of course, was a singer who sang like a trumpeter and a trumpeter who played like a singer. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, then I discovered Paul Desmond, who is one of my five favorite musicians of all time. I love jazz musicians who play beautiful songs in an expressive, lyrical way. Right. Are you one of these nine to five writers or do you write through inspiration or do you wake up in the middle of the night or how does that how do you approach writing? The latter. I'm not a nine to five writer at all. I'm not a morning guy at all. I sleep the morning away. I I goof off during the day. Uh, if I have a deadline, I meet my deadline. But otherwise, the wheels don't really start spinning until until night falls. And then uh, I start writing, and my peak hours would be 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. Yeah. I think of the New York artist Mark Rothko, who had his own studio, and apparently he was a 9 to 5 or He'd leave his wife in the morning with his little bag of lunch and go to his studio, paint or do nothing or just look at his canvases, you know, eat his lunch and then come home at five. I thought, wow, that's pretty wild. But everybody everybody uh, does it different, right? I have nothing resembling that kind of discipline. <laughs> I know I know writers who are so disciplined, they just never stop. They're, they're constantly uh, uh, whipping up new ideas and they have book ideas piled up waiting to be pursued. I am not, sadly, one of those people. I am... Um, I don't come up with book ideas easily. I don't turn them out fast. I I have written five books to date, mm -hmm. uh, and hundreds of articles. I haven't been lazy exactly, uh, but but I, I I don't. I've never uh, had a staff job writing for a newspaper or a magazine where you really have to come up with ideas, meet deadlines, do it fast. I've had the luxury of lingering over articles that I've written because, well, for example, when I when I write articles for Jazz Times, I love writing features for Jazz Times. They let me write about almost any subject that I want, and uh, then I I have weeks to put it together. And in my mind, I want these articles to be for all time. I want to do it so definitively that there is that it's the last word on that subject. You mentioned uh earlier when you were before we started to roll when you were telling me of having in interviewed Sergio Mangis. Um I did a feature on Lonnie Hall 
who was the heart of Brazil 66, if you ask me, and Jazz Times let me do it. And I got to tell the Lonnie Hall story in detail for the first time that anyone had ever done that. Jazz Times lets me do this. Yeah, you've been busy. I mean, Jazz Times, you're a contributor to New York Times, Vanity Fair, Entertainment Weekly. You've been a busy guy. How much research goes into a biography? How much How much research do you think? How many interviews? How much time do you think? I guess it fluctuates on the artist, right? I average 300 interviews per book. Uh, and that's oh. only the beginning of what I do. I, For example, my George Michael biography was published in June, and it was five years from signing to publication. And in that time, apart from all the interviews I did, I also gathered well over 2,000 articles about George, and I had to assimilate every one of those articles. I found every piece of recorded matter that I could possibly find. I I am an obsessive researcher. Writing for me is hell. Research is a joy. I love interviewing people. I love sitting in front of terminals at the library, and I love flipping through folders of old crumbling yellow articles. I could just do that forever. It's when I have to then write the damn thing that that I start to sweat. Is that the most difficult part of writing a biography? The act of writing? Yeah, actually getting oh, hell Oh, hell yes. <laughs> writing for me, it's hard, man, uh, because every time I sit down to write anything, I do it with the feeling that I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to pull this off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I agonize over every sentence. Here, I'll give you an example. Uh, my first audio book was for my George Michael book. And the reader of the George Michael audiobook is not me. It's a professional uh, audiobook actor reader. And when I was first told that somebody else would be doing it, but that I could audition for my own audiobook if I wanted to, I thought, oh, well, gee, I wrote this. Of course, it should be me. But then I got to thinking, first of all, I would have had to spend perhaps 80 hours or so in the studio reading this damn thing. And I thought, if I have to read that book one more time, I will kill myself because I would have wanted to rewrite every sentence in the book. I kid you not. Edit, edit. <laughs> I can rewrite forever. And if I had my druthers, I would still be um pouring over that George Michael manuscript trying to make it better but then the book never gets published yeah let's talk about the Chet Baker book deep in a dream the long night of Chet Baker years after his death Chet Baker still remembered and remains popular today why do you think his legacy is has endured oh that's <clears throat> excuse me a great question um Chet Baker had sex appeal mystique and tragedy uh, he had seduction. He had allure. There are many great musicians of Chet's era, superior trumpet players from a technical standpoint, who do not have that same mystique and who have not endured. Yeah. 
ones that musicians commonly regarded as 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 among the greatest trumpet players of all times why do we remember chet it's because chet has a first of all tragedy sells and chet's life with all his years of heroin addiction and his imprisonment and his his mad Kerouacian on the road existence right. and the fact that Chet flouted every rule of life. He didn't pay his taxes. He didn't have a home. He had a family that he didn't much attend to. Um, it was a, it's a total fantasy to look upon that life. And then he gets up on stage and, and blows heartbreaking notes out of his trumpet and, uh, spoke very slowly and in, in, in a in in a way that with a lot of space chet baker's music is renowned for its spaciousness uh and in those spaces is mystery there there are question marks floating all around chet baker and this uh aspect of him besides the sheer beautiful sound that he made and the fact that his music clearly touches the heart like very few trumpet players ever that i know uh chet baker makes us feel things and i have sat in many a restaurant over the years and i have watched the early chet baker vocal recordings that suddenly come over the the sound system i have watched people stop speaking and just look into space because Oftentimes, they don't quite know what they're hearing. Yeah. There's something strange about it and very, very compelling. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question of why people still care about him so much. Well, I listened to him last night, and you know his theme apparently was My Funny Valentine. Heard that last night. Guy was a great singer. I mean, when I hear today's crooners, i.e., Michael Bublé, Harry Connick Jr. You, it's a throwback to him and like Frank in his forties. It truly is. The guy had a great voice, not to mention his talent and trumpet. Right? I mean, all the tunes I listened to last night. You're right. I sat there the same way, going, "Wow, timeless." He, as a as a singer, in his the first vocal recordings that he did were made in 1953, 54, and 55, and at that time. Chet was a, a sweet, timid-sounding singer. This was new for him. He clung to the melody. He did the improvising on his trumpet. And there's a wonderful boyish quality to him at that totally. time, as well as a certain sexual um, ambiguity that's also interesting. But as time went on and Chet became more confident as a singer, he began to sing more the way he played and introduce his trumpet style into his singing. And when he scatted in later years, and one of the reasons that he scatted is that sometimes after he had gotten his set of false choppers, uh, he didn't have the 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 uh the instrumental stamina that he had had so he would scat when he needed a break and he was able to scat exactly what he would have played on the trumpet and that is what scat singing is all about i hate most scat singing i find most of it unlistenable and pointless and i don't think that most people who attempt it understand that you have to have instrumental chops in order to scat properly and and if what you play i'm sorry if what you sing 
is not good enough to have been played by Zoot Sims or Lee Konitz or Paul Desmond, then I don't see the point to it. I remember in your book, you, you talked about his friend knocking his tooth out by accident with a rock. And then he learned to play without that tooth. And then when he got the replacement, he would more often than not take it out to play. He just learned to do it. Fascinating. Everything about Chet Baker. This is true of legends in general. People don't become legends just because of their body of work. They become legendary because every episode in their life seems mythic. And when Chet Baker lost that uh, tooth as a front tooth, as a lad, he hit it by eventually he got a fake tooth that he would put in on occasion, but he would hide it by not smiling. Right. He and and that is part of the that became part of again the whole Chet Baker mystique because this guy this guy only let out a little bit of ha of a half smile and it it fit the rest of his emerging persona so well. You refer to it as the Mona Lisa smile, which I like. <laughs> I totally get it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. So we can sit here and name great legendary, musically speaking, legendary jazz instrumentalists forever, but very few of them have this marvelously mysterious persona that Chet Baker, not intentionally, I don't think that he created any of it intentionally, it just fell together. Yeah. Astonishing. So your prologue, I mean, it's just pain and glory, the scene of you wrote about the the day of his funeral with everybody there, you know, the family, the ex-wife, the wife, the the kids, you know, and then the people that absolutely adored him as well, the only musicians that were there. His girlfriend for ten of ten years referred to him as her Picasso, the Japanese uh, musician. I've forgotten his name. He referred to him as um, you know a Buddha. I mean, these people looked up to him, right? And yet he put himself on this path of self-destruction. You know, you even mentioned that he even had thoughts of suicide later in his life. You know, if I could ask you bluntly, James, I mean, what went wrong with Chet Baker? Hmm. Wow. That question could be asked of almost any of the people I've written books about what went mm. wrong. Mm. <clears throat> what went wrong is the same thing that went right, because what went wrong is what what gave birth to that music right. that compels us so much what went that I, what went right what went wrong is what eventually tore chet baker like george michael down um alcoholic father oh yeah overly doting mother um a firm desire to get out of that house and out of oklahoma um uh, i would say most of what went wrong this is true of many of us, of course, points back to his relationship with his parents, which was incredibly complicated and troubled. His right. mom adored him. He, she, he was her little angel to his mother, Vera. But his dad, Chesney, was a drunk and sometimes a mean drunk. Yeah. And uh, wasn't his dad mean to him, too? Chet's grandfather, the same idea. It was a family. It's like behavior over time. Very often those patterns are just relived in generation after generation after generation. And in fact, Chet had three sons, one daughter. It was, it's a very troubled set of, of kids. And it's no surprise because the, the, the realities of the way dad lived, they didn't ask to be born into this situation where you love, you love your dad. You want to see him, but he's just never around.
yeah. incredibly scarring. But all of these things that, that we're discussing now are what went into making Chet Baker Chet Baker. You can't fix one aspect of it and then expect everything else to just stay the same. Right. So uh, that's what fascinates me about almost all of the subjects that I choose. And that is the fact that they, in most cases, they, they, they grew up under very torturous circumstances and they bore the scars of childhood for their entire life. And those scars are what made them who they were. It's what made their music so compelling. Peggy Lee, um, who was the subject of my uh, one, two, three, fourth book, uh, Peggy, a lot of girl singers imitate, have tried to imitate Peggy Lee over the years. A lot of girl singers have tried to imitate Lena Horn, and God knows a lot of guys have tried to imitate Chet Baker, but it does all it sounds like is an imitation because those styles that these people sang in were born out of all of their Michigas. They were born out of every af of those aforementioned scars that they carried with them. These styles were not fabrications. These styles were their personal truths. And so uh, female singers could learn a lot from Peggy Lee, I suppose, about restraint and about um, minimalism and God knows about swing, but they cannot replicate the magic of Peggy Lee because the magic of Peggy Lee was hers alone. It was Peggy Lee's. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Belgian writer in your book also compared uh, Chet Baker to Edgar Allan Poe. Also, he mentioned the German poet Rilke. And I love that uh, line from Rilke. He says, our fears are like dragons guarding our greatest treasures. And I think, you know what, uh, Chet Baker had dragons, but he had the guts to get out there and show us his greatest treasures, you know? In the late 90s, I interviewed Anita O'Day, more on her later, because um, Anita was back from her latest near-death experience. She'd had many. She had nearly died after an alcohol, an alcohol-induced fall from the trailer that she was living in. And her injuries snowballed and nearly killed her. And let's see, that was 1996, I think, that that happened. Anyway, a couple of years later, after having been actually not expected to live through the night at one point, Anita O'Day was back. And she was at the JVC Festival, and she had more recording to do. And I... It seemed miraculous, and I interviewed Anita at the retirement apartment building in Hollywood where she was living, and she talked to me. I, and she gave me what I immodestly feel was the best interview she ever gave. She liked me, actually. She knew me. And Anita said something to me that I have never forgotten. It is one of the wisest things ever said to me, and it is as follows. When I asked her about how she how she'd done it again how had she come back she said you gotta have desire man james gavin is in our spotlight today jazz spotlight you know there's a number of theories about baker's mysterious death 
being found dead on a sidewalk 30 feet below a third floor room in his Amsterdam hotel. You touched on this these theories in your book, one of which was Baker was thrown out the window from the uh, drug dealers he hadn't paid. And then you talked about the uh, staff working in the city was rather nervous when he showed up and they, they suspected perhaps suicide. You also, I think I said, the window only opened 12 inches or something. So based on your research, what's your theory? Well, I went into that in great detail in the last couple of chapters of my book. And I talked with people who had known him. And some of the last people who ever saw Chet Baker alive, I talked with. And you're asking me to give a a spoiler for my own book, but hell, this is the 20th anniversary of the Chet Baker biography. I'll have you know, it came out in 2002. Thank you very much. It's still in print. Yes, it's, it is. It's been published all over the world and people, I still get, believe it or not, I get little royalty checks for my Chet Baker book. <clears throat> what is my theory? My theory is that it was definitely not foul play. Uh, and it wasn't exactly suicide either. Chet, instead, I would consider it perhaps a passive-aggressive form of suicide because Chet Baker was done. He was tired of living. His He saw very little reason to go on. The woman in his life, Diane Vavra, had left. She had finally had enough, and she had wrenched her, herself away from Chet Baker. Um, Chet's ability to his mouth was hurting him so much that playing the trumpet had become painful yeah. he was a physical wreck and he was done and uh chet baker uh, in in the last decade or so i suppose of his life was doing speed balls which not many of your viewers will know are a combination of heroin and cocaine that is absolutely hair raising Okay. And um, this speedballs would make Chet go out of his his mind. And Nicola Stilo, the wonderful Italian musician, uh, who shared a lot of Chet's life in his last years, Nicola Stilo had recalled to me that there was one case in which he had to restrain Chet from jumping out a window because he thought he saw he Chet thought he saw something in a tree. Oh. Chet knew that when he did speedballs, he went out of his mind. And the fact that Chet locked himself in a hotel room near the train station in Amsterdam, where nobody knew how to find him. He didn't tell anybody he was there. He didn't want to be found. He didn't want to be helped. And he bl he blew his brains out on speedballs. And I think he let nature take its course. Hmm. Okay. Fashion photographer named Bruce Weber did a documentary about Chet Baker called Let's Get Lost. Wasn't that one of the inspirations for you to write this book? It was released in 88. Now, the movie is quite shocking. A lot of people talk about it. You know, it, the whole thing's about him being destroyed by drugs, of course. Some people closest to Baker did not like the film at all. Do you think the movie turned out the way Weber himself had planned, or was he surprised by how it all turned out? Well, I want to start by saying, first of all, yes, that film opened the door for me to do my book because that film released posthumously <clears throat> um started the chet baker revival and i was able to walk through the door that bruce weber opened yeah. i also want to say that i think that it's a masterpiece and i think that bruce weber nailed the mystery of chet baker better than anybody really had 
or perhaps has, in fact, because the heart of that film, the heart of Chet Baker, is the fact that you alluded to this a, a few minutes ago. When you looked at Chet Baker, you could see anything you wanted to see. And this drove women crazy because they wanted the Chet Baker that he, they heard on those Chet Baker sings vocal recordings. Mm -hmm. They wanted the romance. They wanted the beauty. They wanted the danger. And they wanted it all to be somehow tamed so that they could walk off into the sunset hand in hand with this fantasy. Right. And that and invariably people were disappointed because then they were confronted with the realities of a junkie's life oh. and the fact that chet didn't really have loyalty chet was chet was jack kerouac he was in that car and he was seeing he was out driving and seeing On the, the road. road yeah yeah and so bruce nailed that in his film because the film is about Bruce starting off with this infatuation with Chet Baker in which he was totally gaga about the Chet Baker that he saw in those um, photographs, the Bill Claxton photographs and others and, and heard in those early recordings. And then by the end of the film, you have Chet and Bruce talking one to one in which Bruce says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, Chet, it's really hard for me to see you like this, strung out, a mess. And um, and Bruce, um, Bruce is so naive in a way about after having spent all this time with Chet Baker, still naive about how this could have ever happened. And then you have Chet, his face hardens, and he said, well, Bruce, you wanted to tell my story, and now um, you're seeing the truth and you can't deal with it. Mm. Again, paraphrasing. That, to me, is the heart of the Chet Baker mystique. And that film was, um, it's its legendary, really, because, and, and it traveled the world, and it, 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 um, it got a lot of people, including young people, interested in Chet Baker, but the jazz world was very uncomfortable with that film. It got a lot of scathing reviews from jazz critics who were uncomfortable with the homophobic undertones. I'm sorry, the, ho the homoerotic undertones of that film, not homophobic. The homophobia was in the writers who were offended by what they saw in that film, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and there were complaints, complaints, complaints that he didn't focus on uh, Chet's uh, music enough uh, and that it should have been a much more scholarly and formal documentary. But Bruce paid for that film himself. He had a very specific story that he told in that film that was all his own, and that was his right and uh so that's obviously i i love that movie yeah. and i stepped in when when i began doing my book i i stepped inside that film for for several years and i got to know almost everybody who was in that movie oh. and i experienced those women and had unforgettable experiences firsthand with those women and um came away from that whole experience with great admiration for what Bruce had achieved, apart from 
um, his incredible visual sense, uh, Bruce somehow intuited what Chet Baker was all about. So here's an idea. Here's a food for thought from you, James, on this. Chet Baker usually stance on stage was to close his eyes and look down. What do you think was running through his mind? <laughs> well, let's see. <clears throat> I wouldn't say it was happiness. Yeah. He, he was oftentimes tired. He was oftentimes strung out. But he was more often stoned. Because by that time in his life that you are describing, playing jazz and being high were were indistinguishable for Chet Baker. He couldn't he couldn't play he couldn't go to the places he wanted to go musically speaking if he wasn't stoned. Why do people the age old question why do why are people drawn to getting high? I have to assume that it's because they don't want to deal with reality. reality. They want to go to they want to go to another place. And so Chet was um I think he was sad, I think he was tired, I think he was high, and I think that he was trying to shut out as much of the outside world as he could. So his head was down and his eyes were closed. Making movies, he did some parts too. Why do you think he didn't stay in the movie business? <laughs> Uh, he was bored with the tedious process of making films. It was not for him at all. He only did it a couple of times, but waiting around on sets, memorizing lines, uh, having the kind of discipline that filmmaking entails was not for Chet at all. So what's next for James Gavin? <clears throat> a couple of things. I referenced Anita O'Day earlier. And I was asked by a British publisher that publishes a jazz series edited by a wonderful musician and author of many, many books, Alan Shipton. Out of the blue, he reached out to me and asked me if I would do a book for their series on Anita O'Day. Cool. Now, this is, for me, catnip. I knew Anita O'Day, and I'm putting new in air quotes because she didn't ever seem to remember me from one meeting to the next. Anita had real... Anita lived the life, man, of a junkie because that was a totally spontaneous, in-the-moment kind of life, and you store away what you need to store away. Some guy like me, who loved her music and showed up at a lot of her New York shows and then visited the dressing room afterwards, she was always very nice to me, but she didn't indicate that she remembered me, nor did it matter at all, because um, I had the Anita O'Day experience dozens of times. I love her music. I think that she is underrated in the sense that her name does not come up as a true jazz vocal pioneer as often as it should because she created something that that nobody had done before and she spawned a whole school of singers who were trying to sing in that cool frosty style right. and so and, and also her story is as good as any story that i've ever told it is absolutely tumultuous and hair raising and yet Anita is anything but a tragedy queen because she had a dazzling, beaming smile that she would turn on like a spotlight. And she and, and her music is radiates great joy. Uh, 
she she her, she used her body marvelously she she would she would do this thing with her elbow to 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 get the, the, the you know the groove going exactly where she wanted it to she she conducted the trio like um few band leaders in jazz ever have and so i'm do i'm doing that and i'm having a wonderful time it's helping me detox from the george michael experience i must say which was really hard hardest thing i've ever done i bet well, good luck in all you do, and thanks for your time today. And certainly, James Gavin, thank you for being in our Jazz Spotlight. It was an absolute joy. I could have gone on for hours. This has been another episode of Easy Jazz Spotlight, produced by EasyJazz.fm. <laughs>